Exodus 9, verse 13, 10 through 29 is a long section this morning, and I, 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 really, I really don't have time for a cutesy story to set up the sermon this morning. There is a lot here, and uh, I, I, I basically have got to get into it. Um, on top of a lot of material, there, this is probably one of the most controversial parts of the Bible, um, that God would harden anyone's heart would seem to be unreasonable. It probably is controversial to us as moderns uh, because our culture prizes the enlightenment principle of self-direction. The faith of the enlightenment was a secularizing faith in man's ability to control his destiny and that uh, he is free to be whatever he wants to be. He just has to get out from underneath the thumb of the church, and uh, he will then be free. And and, and the absence of divine influence uh, was something that was popularized and prized. It became very popular in elite circles in Europe and also in our American founding. Uh, People like Thomas Jefferson and Uh, Benjamin Franklin were enthralled with this Enlightenment philosophy, Uh, but there were theologians and pastors in those days who recognized what this really was. They described it appropriately as a refined paganism. Paganism dressed up in new clothing for respectable persons. See, the pagan mind in ancient culture, thought in terms of multiple deities who have jurisdictions throughout the world, and you as a worshiper of these deities could control the deities through your ritual observance. They believed, contrary to Judaism, that the gods could be manipulated by ritual. And what paganism does is it makes man the center of the universe who then pulls puppet strings of the deities around them. It's the belief that mortals can control the world by pulling the right lever, by checking the right boxes, by doing enough good to require outcomes. It's this sense of ownership, but really it's founded upon the error that we are basically good, that we don't have a sin nature. Judaism, on the other hand, and to a large extent Christianity, recognized that the manipulation of the divine is impossible. Rather, mankind was created to live underneath of the face of God, and as the image of God live to glorify Him, because He is the one who oversees our lives. Both Judaism and Christianity recognize that God is the center of the universe, not man. But Christianity and Judaism also believe that man is a moral agent vested with capacity to make choices. And we are given a will 
to make choices which will either glorify God or glorify ourselves. But when we choose to do that which glorifies God, we find that within our souls an enjoyment that is unexplainable because we are being filled with the glory and expression and appreciation of God filling our hearts and lives. The Enlightenment doctrine of self-direction has continued all the way through even the 1960s. I, how, I dare I ask, how many remember the 1960s? If you can raise your hand. Okay. Well, that's getting fewer and fewer of you, but yet that's a, a, a noble attainment to be able to say that you remember those things. But you remember that the sexual revolution in the 1960s, it was, maybe you didn't realize at the time, but it was the fruit of that enlightenment principle. And even today, the gender confusion is the latest result of making self the center of the universe. And this is why Christianity is so ostracized from our society, because we make the claim that man is not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. And the Bible reveals that mankind makes choices. We do make choices under the influence of our sin nature. And before we are converted by the Holy Spirit, we are enslaved to this sin nature. And left to ourselves, we become devils. We do not become divine. And when we make choices to go on our own way, we are fully blameworthy and at the same time, mysteriously, we unwittingly fulfill what God's plan is, and what He's doing in this world. That may feel like a contradiction to us, but the reality is we are not the center of the universe. God is, and He is sovereign over all. And God's plan includes that all who call upon His name will be saved. The Bible also reveals to us that we can be delivered from our sin nature, thankfully. And while we still retain vestiges of it as believers, we can give thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that's working in our lives to gradually, completely eradicate and liberate us from the sin nature that we still possess. There is a secondary principle that lives within us. It's called the Holy Spirit. Now, we want to give thanks for God in Him and give Him glory. It is He, the same God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. He is the one who has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is a lot of darkness in the world. There's at times a lot of darkness in our own hearts hearts, we can give thanks to the Lord for His rays of the Spirit coming through and liberating us 
from the darkness and changing us into His glorious image. This is a, I said, I haven't got a lot of time, but what I've just communicated is so essential to understand properly the next three plagues. The next three blows are culminating in darkness. And all ten, all nine plagues are moving towards darkness, and at the same time, they're causing the reader to hunger for the light. There is a desire should be mounting within the reader. If you're an Israelite reader, a Christian reader, you're looking now for a way out of the darkness. And you need a Savior, you need a Redeemer, and your heart ought to be thrilled with the act of God to liberate His people. For in that liberation, we see glimpses of the greater liberation in which we are delivered from the darkness of our own sin natures. And so, as we look at this text, I want you to be encouraged that when we humble ourselves before the cross, we will find the joy for which we long. Pharaoh ought to have humbled himself, but he didn't. And he suffered the wrath of God for it. But we don't have to succumb to the same fate that Pharaoh experienced. And the pace of these three blows is a little bit slower than the first six, and that's by design, because it's intended to cause us to consider our own lives before the face of God. And so let's look at the first blow that's list here, the hail. We have the hail, and what I want us to note is the blameworthiness of Pharaoh. He is completely responsible for his failure to submit and recognize that he that he, Pharaoh, is not the center of the universe. God is. Now, let's read verse 13 um, through 17. I'm going to kind of break this up a little bit slower as we walk through it. I'm not going to read the whole three-plague volume. We're going to go bit by bit. So, let's read verse 13 uh, through 17. And we have Moses, uh, the Lord saying to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And while it doesn't say that this event took place at the Nile specifically, it follows the model of the first three cycles. It is assumed that this is Pharaoh's pattern to go out and 
as it were, bless the Nile and the productivity of his society for the day, almost like a priest himself. And going to the place where Pharaoh was known to be, he confronts him and delivers a message so that Pharaoh is without excuse. He is informed of the Lord's majesty in verses 13 to 17, the text that I just read. Now, notice that in verse 15, Pharaoh is told that by this point, God could have wiped him off the face of the earth. And he's also informed that he wasn't wiped off the face of the earth because God wants to show him His majesty, to show him that there is none like him in all the earth. Indeed, the whole earth will know the majesty of Yahweh's name, in verse 16 it says. And the Lord restrained His power for this purpose, and years later, years later, there was a Canaanite in the land of Palestine, whose name was Rahab. And Rahab would tell two spies. She would say this, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how that the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, when you came out of Egypt. The news of what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, had done was passed along the trade caravans, and it was, it was known, and the noise of what God had done preceded Israel as they went. And in this, Pharaoh is seen to be ridiculous. He is ridiculous in his pride. How is it that a lowly prostitute humbled herself before the majesty of God? Why not Pharaoh? Why would he not humble himself? And in this, we are seeing that Pharaoh is completely blameworthy for his obstinance, his stubbornness. But we also see in this movement we also see the Lord's mercy. We see the Lord's mercy. Verses 18 to 20, we hear additional information about what this plague will entail. Verse 18, behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into the safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And whoever feared the Lord, word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the house. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. Now, in this description of this blow, there's ample warning given. Apparently, there were still some livestock that were still in existence after the pestilence that had gone through that affected a good 
portion of the cattle in the earlier plague. Now, in this, there was a warning to bring the servants and also the livestock in. And I want you to note just how hard Pharaoh is that in the face of a warning, in light of all that he had seen, he negates his responsibility to issue a warning to his people. Pharaoh is incredibly hardened. He ought to have been a good ruler and warn everyone. He doesn't. He just, as if it were, turns away and lets everything just lay where it will lie. I would say that this is an indication of his wickedness as a ruler. And knowing the trauma that was going to come, he didn't step in to protect his people. See, the Lord God is blameless in his judgment, and there was ample warning given. Now, you note that there were some people that did fear the word of the Lord. Verse 20 says that there were some who heard. They heard what Moses said, and they quickly rushed to get their, their livestock and their servants into the house so that they wouldn't be rained down upon. But yet, in verse 21, we recognize that there were some who didn't pay attention. They, and I want you to note that those who refuse to listen are even more blameworthy than those who did fear the word of the Lord. They're more blameworthy because there were some who heard it, and those folks who heard it and chose not to chose not to when they could have chosen to do it. They could have responded. And the fact that some people do respond indicates that they are more blameworthy. I want you to note, I personally believe, now this is not a scriptural text, but it follows within the the frame of what Jesus said to His generation, that when the miracles that He was doing, there would be other generations that would rise up in judgment and say, why? Why? didn't you respond? And I believe one day Nebuchadnezzar is going to rise in judgment against Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, will say to Pharaoh, I was a ruler of an empire vastly greater than yours. The Lord God came and He humbled me. He took my memory and my wits away. I was like an ox for seven years. I, I, my nails grew out like talons of an eagle. I was wet with the dew of heaven, and yet I repented and I turned. I believe Nebuchadnezzar is going to stand up one day and say to Pharaoh, what was wrong with you? Why were you so obstinate? Well, in verse 22 through 26, we see the Lord's power unleashed. We see the description, the just overwhelming outflow from the heavens. And it says in verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. And then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. 
There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very great hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Thunder. Hail. Fire. But yet, protection for His chosen people. One geologist has suggested that it was potentially, you know, thinking if if God was using secondary means to accomplish His miracle here, potentially a volcano could have sent forth electrically charged ice mixed with ash, and they would have been perceived potentially as, as hail shot through with lightning, and there could have been chemical burns that have been part of the fallout. Again, it's not something that's said specifically here, but if you're using something to compare with, I believe this was a supernatural event. I believe that God had these things occur. Certainly, He could have used natural means. But the severity of the storm was such that God's power was clearly, clearly seen. And you think about Moses. Moses is lifting up his hand, and he's got the staff in his other hand, perhaps, and he's, he's commanding the heavens to give way. It's incredible power. We also see that God's or the Lord's voice is then felt by Pharaoh. Verse 27 to 35, let's keep reading. It says, And then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned, and the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall, not, you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. And the flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord, and thunder and hail ceased, and rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The word thunder, literally, in the Hebrew, is the word voice. And in the next, in this section, there is this hint that Pharaoh was rattled by the thunder, or if he was envisioning this as God's voice, booming from heaven. He says, plead with the Lord, 
for there has been enough of God's voice and hail. Verse 28. Was Pharaoh listening to the word of the Lord which directed the thunder and the hail to fall? That's a good question. We even see Pharaoh admitting something that he's not admitted before. He's admitting that he is a sinner. Did you notice that? But he doesn't go the full way. Verse 27, we note that the Lord's face, I believe, is avoided. He has perhaps now something of a correct perspective on himself. First time he uses the word sin in verse 27, a very important development in the story. And I, I pause just to say that if we are unwilling to admit that we are sinners, we cannot be born again. We will not be born again if we cannot admit that we are sinners. But significantly, and this is also true, we cannot be born again if we do not admit who we have sinned against. Pharaoh avoids saying whom he has sinned against. Rather, he just keeps it more flat and says, okay, the Lord's in the right, we are in the wrong. And he doesn't go that full distance where he looks at his own sin and says, this isn't just something that I have a problem. I'm actually in rebellion against God. The reason I say that, because he will also say something more direct in the next passage, because he knows what he ought to say. And so, sin is a rebellion against God. It is a heinous act. And I want us to stop and think about this. If we are not willing to look deeply into the face of God Himself and recognize that we are the ones who put Jesus on the cross if we are not willing to admit that it was our wicked sin nature, God will look down upon us and say, you don't really fully know the fear of me yet. You won't know the extent of my mercy towards you because it was your sin that nailed my son to the cross. It was a voluntary nailing. It was a necessary nailing. But we have to admit that we need the cross. It was, we did that. I haven't seen those stickers around town as much lately on the gas pumps. I did that. Hey, when you look at the cross, when you look at the cross, you need to say, I did that. I did that. In verse 34 to 35, we see a direct correlation between the sin that is existent in Pharaoh's heart and then his hardening. Because in verse 34 to 35, we see this. We see, Pharaoh saw the rain and hail and thunder that had ceased. He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. 
And so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. There is a direct correlation here. As soon as he had relief, he sinned again. He failed to obey. And that sin of failing to obey led to a further hardening of his heart. Now, Christian, you might be sitting here and thinking, well, that's Pharaoh. He's not a believer. I'm a believer. But you can also harden your heart. You also can do this. It's called quenching the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit brings the work of conviction into your heart to expose a particular sin, if you say no to God and don't seek forgiveness and repentance, you also are hardening your heart. Now, there's a big difference because God won't treat you as an enemy. He will treat you as a son, and He will bring you through pain and sorrow as a chastening from a heavenly Father to draw your heart back towards Him. But we also, when we feel the hotness of the Holy Spirit weighing upon us, we also must humble ourselves and freely admit that we have sinned. But we also find a Savior who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a privilege that we have, but we ought not spurn the gift of the Spirit that exists within us. A slower pace for the first play in this cycle, it's intentional. It's to draw the reader to stop and consider. Let's look at the second blow that comes here in the locust. The pace picks up just a little bit, but there's still a a slowness to it to, to cause us to realize that the glory of God can still be had in the judgment of sinners. God will get glory over everything in this world, and it may be through the judgment that comes and falls upon sinners. Man's sin, in other words, does not frustrate the glory of God, and God is glorified in the vindication of sin's judgment. That's the whole message of the cross. The cross itself is a glorification in the vindication of sin, in, in the punishment of sin. God receives glory in the substitution through His Son. But I want you to notice here the progress in the supervision of a hardening that takes place in the heart of, of Pharaoh. There's a supervision of this hardening process. Verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 10, there is an intentional frame. This is a literary construction to get us to notice because the start of this plague is the exact same as the ending of this plague. At the end of verse 20, there is a concise similarity of statements. So, let me read verses 1 to 2. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. 
that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And down in verse 20, we read this, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. This is like parentheses, bookends. It's saying the same thing. But what we see is that there is a supervision taking place of Pharaoh's hardening. Now, as I said, this is a slower, more deliberate uh, approach here to describing these. This book and approach is just part of that process. Um, at the beginning of the plagues, even before they really got going, we had heard from the voice of the Lord that this is how it was going to go. Moses was not going to have immediate success, not because he wasn't like having a standing in Pharaoh's court. Like, Moses was a respected member of the tribe of Israel. He had a valid place standing in Pharaoh's presence. But that wasn't what it was. It wasn't a problem of that, nor was it the fact that Pharaoh or that Moses didn't have a commanding message because he did. In fact, God told Moses that in time, Pharaoh's going to look at you as a god and he's still not going to listen. Your brother Aaron's going to come off like a prophet speaking on your behalf, and Pharaoh is still not going to listen. And the plain reading that we read at that time was that the reason for that is that God was going to harden his heart and do something. Now, again, this flies in the face of that Enlightenment philosophy, the Enlightened philosophy that we are a self-directed being and that we can, without any influence from outside of ourselves, we are on our own. We control the universe. But that's not true. Scripture doesn't even blink here. And the Lord tells Moses to go in because he is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's countercultural. That doesn't sound good to Americans. You mean there is a God out there who is superintending what's going on in my life? Yes. Now, I've noticed, I've noted in past sermons the changing verb tenses. And in the whole string of these plagues, there is in the process of hardening this alternation between just a simple expression that, that Moses, or Pharaoh's heart is hardened and that Pharaoh then hardens his own heart. And then as we got to the last plagues in the last cycle, we started to see this change in which the Lord is hardening the heart. In this first two verses, we see a change in tense again. And again, I'm going to spare you all the technicals. But it's a very intentional tense that's used. It's the perfect tense in which the Lord is on the outside of things describing the whole. There are actions that are occurring in the whole, but He is standing on the outside saying, I have done this. I have supervised 
this whole thing from start to finish. And in this process, we probably see one of the clearest statements that's also parallel in other parts of Scripture. Proverbs 21 one says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. I think that's a succinct summary of what we're seeing here. And yet, it's highly controversial. I understand that. But one of the ways that the Lord directs hearts is letting that heart simply go where it wants to go. Pharaoh is a very broken man by this point. However, through these, he gets this new resolve. It's like he's about ready to concede everything, and then all of a sudden, he has new resolve, and he hardens his heart again. Like, how many times? Like, this is insane. It is insane. He's losing touch with reality. He's fighting another day. Stubbornness. Where would it come from? Well, God's purpose in doing this to Pharaoh is ultimately to have glory to Himself over Pharaoh and to tell the story of deliverance to another generation, to give a very clear indication that the Israelites have a God like no other God in the universe. And that's our God. There is an important fear that we ought to have of respect for this kind of of God. We do not want to have a God that we put in our back pocket. We have a God who commands the world. There is also a supervision of Pharaoh's descent into madness. In verse 7 through 19, I guess I haven't read verses, um, the early parts of this. this, Let me do that. Verse 3, it says, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts on your country, and they shall cover the face of the earth, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen." from the day that they came upon the earth to this day. And then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? And Moses says, we will go with our young, our old, we will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if ever I let you or your little ones go. 
Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh, in this situation, is losing. He's losing his grip on government. He's also losing his own mind. And after Moses leaves, Pharaoh's servants begin to challenge his decision-making and said, are you sure? You've got to be great. Like, we have an opportunity here to save Egypt. What are you doing? And they say, well, at least like, like, let the men go. Like, negotiate something here, Pharaoh. Like make, like, make some kind of concession. And in that, Pharaoh is losing his grip on his power. And he leads to a negotiation, and yet he is frustrated with the obstinance of Moses. You, it's like, Pharaoh's like, what do you mean you've got to take everybody with you? Come on, Moses. Let's, like, let's negotiate. I'm going to be the like, generous one. Why are you, Moses, being so obstinate? Can you hear the madness in that? He is losing touch. And when Moses stands firm and says, no, this is what the Word of the Lord says, why are you being obstinate? Pharaoh loses it and throws them out of his courtroom. And the locusts come, and everything is darkened like a shroud of death. Let's read on. Let's read on. In verse 12, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. And so Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. And the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land, and all the fruit of the trees, and the hail that had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, throughout all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. And so he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Everything was darkened. This plague, I believe, very likely descended on Goshen as well, because the, up to this point, there's been some protection. But I believe here the whole country indicates the whole country, including Goshen. And that may be because it would be an encouragement to Israel to leave Egypt because there's now nothing left in Egypt. So that when it's time to go, they're leaving. 
There's nothing to stay for. And in this, Pharaoh seems to be repentant because now he admits who he has sinned against. You would think that this would be true repentance. However, the motive of his heart is still not with the Lord. He is still longing for his own self-sovereignty. He wants to still be in charge and still have a say. This doesn't flip the switch. He has no love for God. All he really wants is this death to be removed. But the reality is he's going to taste death shortly. And as book ends, we read those ominous words in verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord was the one who caused his heart to be hardened. Again, God is merely letting him have what he wants. Then we move into the third plague, the darkness, verse 21 to 29. Let's read it. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses says, as you say, I will not see your face again. Now, this blow came without warning. It came all of a sudden. And it's typical of the third in the sequence. And this third blow is terrifyingly psychological. I cannot think of a more terrifying experience to not only be locked down, and for it to be pitch black. Wasn't the lockdown enough when we were locked down for eight weeks, 12 weeks? That was terrifying in its own way. Think about locked in, like, you can't go anywhere because you can't see anything. That's terrifying. And it says in verse 21 that's a darkness to be felt pitch blackness, three days. But notice who had light. Israel had light. 
Do you know what the definition of insanity is? You've probably heard it before, right? It's doing the same thing, but expecting different results, and you keep doing it. He keeps trying to negotiate. He's insane. He's lost touch with reality. He tries to keep the livestock behind. He's toying with death. You know, the Lord is a light. He is the light of the world. And by contrast, hell is characterized as outer darkness. You know the three hours on the cross in which there was darkness and God turned His face away? Christ took three hours of darkness and three hours and three days in the tomb so that you might be spared from millennium after millennium after millennium of darkness. That is a blessing. That is something to rejoice in. The Lord is my light and my salvation. If we have any doubt as to what's happening, we're told again here in this case that the Lord caused to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh, in the last verses, he screams, he screams at Moses, get away from me, take care never to see my face again. On the day that you see my face, you're going to die, Moses. Pharaoh was not actually cursing Moses. He's cursing the Lord. Christ took the curse, but men still curse the Lord. C.S. Lewis, a voice from the last century, wrote a book called The Great Divorce, and he said this, he said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find, and those who knock, it shall be opened unto them. One of my children recently asked me, you know, Dad, those verses that, where it says, if you ask for anything in my name that God will give it to you. Does that mean like, like we can ask for like, like literally anything? Like, like if I want to have like a, a Lamborghini or I want to have a pet goat or whatever, he'll give it to me? 
I said, well, actually, no. Jesus actually, in context, was talking about something even greater. He was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, and He was saying that if we ask for a new heart that loves our Heavenly Father, that He will grant us a new heart. Jesus was warning us not to be like Pharaoh. He was telling us in His great sermon that you cannot serve God and wealth. And if you have a problem with serving God where your, your eye and your heart get so twisted that you, you, keep, you keep going towards serving this world, and you start to see it, and you call out to the Lord, and you knock and you seek, you're going to find that God will give you a new heart. See, Pharaoh loved his own enlightenment doctrine that he was self-sovereign over his world. He was a pagan who believed in his independence and not God's sovereignty over him. And Pharaoh's heart was so bad, he refused to ask God for a new heart that would love him above all else. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, he did repent, and he was given a new heart. See, Jesus tells you that if you desire a new heart, He will give it to you if you will say, Thy will be done. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy will be done. You go to the Lord with that kind of heart, He will give you what you ask for. When we humble ourselves before the cross, we will find the joy that we long for. Let's pray.